Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Amanda Covitana, who is a half-Thai, half-British lesbian who lives in the Bay Area right now, but she grew up in Thailand and then immigrated to the United States, came out as a lesbian and participated in the gay liberation movement, so-called, and now is very concerned about the gender ideology that is taking front and center stage of gay rights, so called. In this conversation, we talk about the history of Thailand and Thailand's relationship to gender and sexuality, which I find very fascinating because it touches on that concept of the third gender or how other societies and cultures treat the gender non-conforming individual in a way that might be more healthy and more in line with reality than medicalization or the complete decimation of all gender roles and the recreation of reconfigured and perverted sex stereotypes that don't serve anything other than the so-called identity of those who are just different than other people. You can find Amanda's work and social media down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Amanda Covitana. How's your uh, 4th of July? Oh, it was fun. I live in a mountain town and every year they have a town picnic to raise money for the fire brigade. Oh. So everybody brings the food the volunteers cook it and then we buy a plate and load up <laughs> so everybody is in town comes and we can chat and see our neighbors it, it's a very uh, eclectic assortment of people who want to live in in a town that focus primarily on music culture live music and yeah. then uh, so everybody has their reasons for living here but not necessarily similar politics oh yeah but it's all it's all tolerated because we are very concerned about the fire security of this town being in California we were evacuated at one point in uh, 2021 okay. because of the fires. Yeah. So that's quite a, a way to be bonded as a town and rise above the, uh, you know, in what is basically inconsequential beliefs. <laughs> hmm. Um, depending, uh, I mean, sometimes they are consequential, sometimes not, but not as consequential <laughs> yes. as your fire is, uh, fire's about to devour your house. Right, right. right? Puts things in perspective for sure. <clears throat> and do yes. you, do you run, uh, do you run a little business up there? Or are you keep busy? I'm or actually, you're an artist? uh, I'm a professional organizer. Okay. So I go to people's houses and help them set up systems and organize and yeah. go through their stacks and piles and decide what to throw out and what to keep. What is the, uh, what's the method? How do you know? How do you help them sort? Uh, we, we have a discussion about what it is 
they must prioritize and find. And usually they don't realize that they've just kept everything. And when they see it, they go, oh, I don't need that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a good way to, as, as a writer, to observe how people really live and what their concerns are and how, what they carry in their mind to uh, execute reality-based decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's uh, helpful psychologically to, to understand that, to work with people who have different ideas of just really basic things, how to stay organized, what yeah. to keep, what is history, what is memorabilia. Do you help them with their schedules too, or just yes? Their there is a time space. management. Okay. Time management time, is yeah. a component, yeah. and people who who want to be punctual and what you have to do to arrange your schedule, your priorities in order to be on time, and also because they don't give time to organizing their stuff. It's part of my job to convince them that 10 minutes spent here, five minutes there, will save them huge, onerous tasks from all these things piling up. Yeah. So that's that's my uh, bailiwick of skills, working with difficult people, with overwhelming (laughs) situations somewhat delusionary ideas about how much they can really save, how many books they can really have in a limited space, that kind of thing. How did you get into that? Did you just find that that was a talent of yours or did you have to go through a great organization of yourself first? (laughs) Uh, (sighs) Spatial, I I was trained as a graphic artist that was the only uh, degree that I could find that would not involve living in the closet. This, you know, I came of age in the 70s and the 80s, you know, homophobia was still at large. So in order to find a line of work that uh, would not involve being in the closet, most professional work careers, lawyer, doctor, teacher, especially, would involve being closeted. So I picked uh, art, (laughs) graphic art, which promised that I would have a career. And then I got to hang out with all the creative gay boys, mostly. (laughs) Hmm. And so having a spatial mind allowed, and I had a a skill for space, for for being able to visualize space and how to organize into those spaces. And that led to me wanting to hang a shingle out as a professional organizer. It was just beginning to be a uh, career when I 
quit my uh, graphic design job and decided to launch myself as an independent contractor. So I could do art and try to get jobs as an artist, graphics, but it is so competitive a field. It's so glamorous that everyone wants to, you know, do the Apple logo. I mean, I live in the, in Silicon Valley where every five feet in Palo Alto, there is a graphic designer who did something really amazing for some startup, including the Apple logo with the bite out of it. <laughs> so, so it was too much competition hmm. and helping people get organized was much, a much, uh, instantly rewarding because then you leave a space better than when you got there. And, uh, people, extremely grateful. So really, in order to be asked back to help further, that's all I had to do for that day. And then I could go home, not take my work home with me and write, which was, you know, my real avocation. Hmm. And that writing has always been your avocation? I would say so. Um, when I was growing up in Thailand, there were very few English books and my mother's English, and my father Thai. So I lived in the Thai language and everything was in Thai, but my school language was English and English books were hard to come by at that time. So I really treasured the English stories. My, my cultural heritage was a lot in English storybooks, children's books. So I wanted to tell the story of where I was, you know, mad dogs and Englishmen <laughs> are, are always finding themselves in exotic places and it was a thing to do to describe it and that way I could be part of my English heritage while I was living my Thai heritage. So my first book was about growing up in Thailand and what that was like. And what, what uh, you said the 70s is when you were growing up or? Yes, I, I came to the States in 1968. So my coming of age was in the 70s and young life was in the 80s, which was just at the time that the gay community were beginning to rev up the gay movement. And I mm -hmm. had come out at, as a lesbian in as soon as I hit college. I was already aware in high school that I would likely prefer girls. So how did your parents meet? How did my parents meet? Um, in university, 
my father was of a privileged class who usually would send their children overseas to study at, at uh, Western universities. And so he went to King's College in England to get his PhD in engineering. Uh, and he met my mother who was getting her degree in uh, psychology. Quite a contrast. <laughs> hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, two different uh, two different modes of plugging into the world and constructing and deconstructing it. Yes, my mother had a sense of adventure. Yeah. So Thailand at that time when they're meeting, could you just fill in some of the uh, the historical details, like uh, post World War Two? How did things shake out for Thailand after the conflict? settled down. Uh, it, it was very interesting because Thailand was occupied by the Japanese and they built the death railway. They were forced, uh, the Japanese forced the allied prisoners and Thai, assorted Thai peasants to build the death railway, which, which is where we get the movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Yeah, that's what flashed into my head. Yes. And the, the Thais loved to uh, celebrate the bridge, the bombing of the bridge and with a sound and light show at the, at the actual bridge. So, so Thailand... And what was that death bridge for? Was it for China, Chinese specifically? It was or? for the Japanese to bring in supplies, I think, for the war. Okay, okay. Though, and the war specifically, uh, or their, their encroachment into China or just the entire region? They were encroaching into Southeast Asia. Yeah, they just wanted the whole thing. Uh, be because, well, Southeast Asia had lots of resources that weren't found elsewhere, like rubber, um, rice is, is our biggest import, export, I mean. So, yes, there, there was lots to be had there. And the French and the English had colonized on either side of us, Burma and Cambodia. Thailand uh, avoided being colonized. Because it, was a, it had a strong national uh, sense of national destiny or, or was it heavily fortified? Uh, it had or? a very, very intelligent king. This king was portrayed in the movie, The King and I, you know, the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein musical, yeah. uh, which was banned in Thailand. And so was a recent remake banned. Huh. Uh, but anyway, this king who is very uh, intelligent and educated, he could see that if he did not modernized Thailand, then he would be overwhelmed by colonial forces. So he invited them to meet with him in his court and he created relationships with them. So these, uh, they were rival colonials to the, the French and the British and Portuguese were also there. 
So Thailand was kind of a meeting place where everybody could meet on neutral soil and negotiate. And because the Thai king willingly hosted them, he could then negotiate a position as uh, a neutral country. Yeah, the Geneva of the Orient. Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to the Venice of the East, which is a very common uh, way of characterizing Bangkok. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it, it does give Thailand a uniquely indigenous heritage because we weren't colonized. We, c we were open about our heritage and, you know, we, we had Buddhism and we kind of embraced the Christian missionaries. They, they built huh. schools and we took advantage of the schools. No one ever really converted. And that's how we sort of kept the peace. Thailand is unusual in that way. Yeah. Huh. Okay, and then, so, so it, it, it wagered itself, it, it navigated through the colonial period, and then, then the Japanese go apeshit, pardon my French, <laughs> and they want to take over Southeast Asia, and so they occupy Thailand as, as well as several other places, and how did that, how did Thailand get through that, and then what was the result after World War II of surviving that, and then reestablishing itself? Yes, Thailand um, realized that they wouldn't have a chance against the Japanese if we took up arms. So we simply agreed to host them, but at the same time were very subversive and created an underground to help the allies. So we, we were sort of playing both sides, in a sense. And the Japanese demanded that Thailand declare war against the British and the United States. And the ambassador in the United States took one look at that and said, that's ridiculous. And he just quietly slips the order into his desk drawer and never did declare war against the US. I think the British ambassador followed those orders. So afterwards, we, Thailand was able to pick, pick up uh, negotiating on peaceful terms with the West. Yeah. And do you know why it would have sided with the West as opposed to the communists after, after the shakeout? Um, well, in World War II, China? Yeah. the communists were not an issue. That wasn't until Vietnam War. Yeah. We, we didn't want to be occupied by the Japanese. But we couldn't fight them, so we had to root for the Allies. <laughs> yeah. It, it's an uneasy, uh, for a small country with very little uh, 
firepower or negotiating power. It's a very different dance yes. that, that has to be done. And so when, so, when your parents are, they meet in what, the, I guess the 50s or 60s, early 60s, late 50s? Yes, mid-50s, meeting at college. So my mother, who had gone through the bombing of London, she survived with a, a great sense of optimism. And hmm. she, she was the first of her family to go to college. So she really wanted to study psychology, how people's mind worked, how her family dynamics got that way. And my father, who was very much about taking apart everything as a child, uh, was a natural for engineering. So he was uh, top of his class in, in engineering. He was a very bright man, but rather we would say he was on the autism spectrum, Asperger. So my mother would uh, fill in for his inability to really suss out a social situation. Hmm. So in that sense, they, they worked well together. And then after my dad got his degree, we went back to Thailand. I was born in, in that time between his master's degree and his PhD. And so I was three when we went back to Thailand. Okay. Yeah. And how did their, how did their, their cultures meet? Was it, um, was your mother and father were, do they fit into each other? The the British woman and the, and the Thailand Thai gentleman. Did they did those cultures uh, get along? Well, in there was a cult. Yes, because of the the tradition of Thailand to have relationships with the West. The royal family had also sent their sons overseas, and one son came back with a Russian woman and so a precedent had been set for these mixed marriages as long as they were the son the Thai man was bringing home a foreign wife the other way around has a completely different social uh, situation because during the Vietnam War, American soldiers were in Thailand. That, that was the closest port to launch their uh, activities against Vietnam. So we were, the, the, down, the downside of hosting the Americans was that we were the R&R, capital and thus yeah. the sex trade was massively expanded for the GIs. Really? So this, this, so when we think of Thailand as our Bangkok as, as some sort of, you know, um, 
place where you go to get you, your R&R on that was really mm-hmm. established during the Vietnam War, during the, the 60s and the 70s? Yes, it was actually established by the Japanese occupation. Okay. Be- because they had to have their comfort women. Mm. And so they established the original sex trade and then the American being in Thailand really expanded it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we became known the world over for this horrible sex trade. Hmm. What is what is the feel, the general feeling from your point of view of Thailand for that toward that reputation of theirs, the hospitality oh. with a, with a happy ending, let's say. Well, you mean uh, how do we socially look at that? Yeah. As a yeah. culture? Uh, well, as a culture uh, reflecting on yourself and then also reflecting on the reputation. Like, I think we mostly ignore it. Hmm. We live next to it. You know, there, there's a, a street maybe half a mile from my house called Soy Cowboy, where all the girl bars are. And so we tolerate it. We know that it's a huge source of income. And there, there has been a lot of measures to, for educating on safe sex. It's still a real problem because the poor send their children to Bangkok. Yeah. And that's how it keeps going. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, I, this, this is a, this is a fraught topic or is it, I, I mean this in a respectful and open manner, but I believe the, the concept of the lady boy kind of, it revolves around, it kind of has roots in, in that sex trade culture in, in Thai. Am I, mm. am I correct or not? And what, what well, are the relation, what's the relationship of, uh, Thailand culture, um, pre sex trade and post sex trade to homosexuality and to effeminate boys and to that, to, to the lady boy. Uh, yeah. The, the, the lady boy just, just to define is, um, a man who cross-dresses and lives as a woman, maybe not full-time, maybe just part-time. And he is usually assumed to be gay. So that is part of the, what I call the third gender culture, or, yeah. or what is known now as third gender cultures. And it is a long-time tradition indigenous, you could say, going way back, that there would really? be cross-dressing men. Because I, I had gone to villages way outside of Thailand where no foreigners were. And I would see these cross-dressing men with their long hair and they would be just doing jobs like they were the cashier at a restaurant or they were even owners of the restaurant. So. They, they had a place in society and people tolerated them and accepted them. Uh, they accepted homosexuality. And that was the same as how my family saw it. So when I 
was a gender non-conforming child, they were like, okay, she is, has the spirit of, of a boy and it's manifesting itself this way. And, and by that they mean that reincarnation, you, you are born into a different body every life and your experience, your karmic experience may have been as the opposite sex before. But now you've come to this life to learn what might be the lessons of being in the sex you were born in. So even though you have this inclination to be, to cross-dress or to be interested in things that were associated with the other sex, you were still accepted and expected to accept that you had been born mm -hmm. this life as, in my case, as a woman. So even though I was uh, a rowdy tomboy who I'd like to ride my bicycle right through the house, the, the part that was accessible, uh, where the kitchen, outdoor kitchen was, and ring my bell very loudly. And it was just a way that I expressed my sort of boyish tomboyishness. And I did all the tomboy thing, climbing trees and building things, making marbles from the mud, which was very much a Thai folk toy. And so my relatives accepted this was the way I had come in and they allowed me to dress the way they wanted. I even have a, had a relative who made me an outfit that had a shirt collar and short pants buttoned up and it was, it was perfect. I loved it. It was in Thai cotton, traditional with Thai design. Uh, it was a shirt that men would wear, boys would wear on holiday or just casually. And so they indulged me in that sense for just to please me. But then we had obligations to represent the family and in my case, because my family was uh, courting royal favor, my grandmother was courting favor with the royal family. And so she, the, there was always a fashion show at, at hmm. the palace across the street, a minor palace, not, not the grand royal palace. And so all the children of the aristocratic class were invited to come and be in this fashion show. It was my kindergarten that set it up. So I had to wear the dress that my grandmother picked out. And because it was such a sort of ceremonial presentation of the children of our class, I didn't 
even think to object. I was just like, okay, I'm part of this class, part of this society, and it is an honor to wear a dress and walk down this aisle in front of the whole community. Because I knew that this wasn't really me I was presenting, it was actually my family and my family name and social standing. But then at home, I could do what I wanted. Yeah. I, I took photos when I first got a camera, I said it, got, got my tomboy friend to help me and had got my outfit on that was a sailor's outfit and had her take pictures of me pretending to row a boat and pretending to be a sailor. sailor. And I totally thought that I was a sailor, like a man, a sailor. But then when I got the photos back, I was like, ah, it just looks like a kid. <laughs> a kid wearing a costume. So in that sense, I learned to play with gender. I, I, most of our clothes, we didn't, we didn't have off the rack clothes then. Most of our clothes were uh, made by local seamstresses. So everything was really hmm. made to order. There was no going to the boys' department to pick out clothes or going to the girls' department. It was all going to the dressmakers to get something made. Or you could buy children's clothes also in the market that made by freelancing seamstresses. And my mother would buy me the trousers with pockets that I wanted that were clearly made for a boy. Uh, and she was a tomboy herself. So, you know, growing up in the rubble of bombed out London, you basically had to be tough anyway. So it yeah. was an advantage to be a tomboy so at the time. British culture and Thai culture, Thai, I know British culture better than I know Thai culture. And I know British culture has a relationship with class that's pretty deeply embedded. And it's just kind of a part of their culture for a really long time. It sounds like Thai mm -hmm. has, it, 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 there's a tears, there's tears to yes. society. Yes. And that's kind of a stable form formation. Um, then what I'm thinking about, because of the work that I do, uh, on my channel is kind of investigating like the spread of cultural Marxism or various different Western ideas that try to destabilize hierarchy, destabilize social order in order to free people or to emancipate people from all forms of order. And mm. uh, what I'm, there's kind of two kind of things that you're making me think of is gender in my point of view, I use the term gender in a positive sense as just the social, stabilizing uh formality of sexed uh the the sexed reality sex reality men and women have different functions have different proclivities have different kind of value sets and those are very deeply embedded in 
our biology and in our drives in the world and then what is expected to happen to us. And so societies, cultures develop ways of harmonizing the male and the female and putting them into these categories of, you know, the masculine and the feminine. And, and there's a, there's a lot of variation in how cultures express that. The same thing, I think gender is, is a social construct contract it's a very necessary part of how society functions because we are sex beings also class i don't have i'm not allergic to class i'm not allergic to you know me i'm lower middle class but i but i i can see it as an american as a porous thing where i can i can kind of act and behave and plug into different kind of class structures but class structure is just a necessary way of organizing society from my point of view so um i bring that up because if thai if thailand preserved its class um, and preserved its culture through this, you know, dealings with the West. Um, I'm wondering how it's preserved its sense of stability, its sense of class when uh, meeting different Western ideas of destabilizing class, of Marxism, of socialism, how it kind of shaped up to that. That's a big question. I also want to know, understand... Thailand's relationship to gender roles, how they formulate gender roles, gender expectations, how, how, how rigid those are, how flexible those are, and just how Thai, you know, Thai, Thai people, Thai folk relate to themselves as gendered or as sexed beings. Yes. And then where you, the, somebody like you from a third gender, which isn't a political concept. It's just a way that, that your culture has naturally developed a relationship to gender nonconforming and homosexual. Hmm. Like your take on that and what you've learned about yourself and about your culture being in that very special position. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Well, that is quite a bit to chew on. I did. I do that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um... But I waited 40 minutes before I sprang it on you. So. <laughs> Yes, uh, Thai people are, are very grounded and centered in their Thainess. So when something from the West comes along, they receive it and reject it at the same time. Mm-hmm. In the sense that if it's trendy and it's fashion related and it has to do with material goods, cars and watches and purses. They're all for it. They have fabulous shopping malls that are just like entire cities within this air-conditioned building to, to dispense all those status items. But then when you get down to it, the spiritual and psychological home is with Thai Buddhism, Thai animism, Thai culture, (laughs) and traditions. They are so rooted that no one would even think to break it down. The the, uh, language of Thai Thai, speaking Thai, um, first of all, we don't have more than one pronoun. There's just the one pronoun for everybody. Um, We have various ways to ask, is it a boy or a girl? We don't even have 
man, woman, girl, boy. It's just girl or boy. Uh, so it's a very basic language. It describes material rea reality. It has no euphemisms for very basic bodily functions. So it's hard to persuade a Thai to take on something that's cerebral and philosophical. Uh, when I first got to college in, in the US and I wanted to take a class in philosophy and I learned about the Cartesian split between mind and body, I was just like, forget it. <laughs> Makes no sense at all. <laughs> so in that way, it's hard to convert a tie to these Western constructs because uh, it still comes down to we were born into this body. We have to deal with it. Uh, and so, so Thailand is also kind of uh, known to be a, a society of conflicts, but it's only that way if you're looking at it from a Western viewpoint. So hard to explain. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, please, yeah, yeah. Could you could you open up on that? That's really fascinating. <laughs> a society of conflicts. Uh, yes. For instance, we're, we're known to be peace-loving and almost passive, yet we have a very aggressive kickboxing sport. Okay. And there's also other aggressive sports like cockfighting and fishfighting and, you know, any two things that could be made to fight. And you can sit <laughs> around and watch and take bets. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, the so, uh, society of contradictions. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, okay, yeah, okay. Uh, and and what about the contradictions the in... <laughs> oh, really? I mean, it's outlawed now, but that originally but was. was, you know, a, a kick to the head could just break the neck. And so yeah. that was the original sport. And death-defying... Uh, ideas like there was this huge swing built in the center of Bangkok. The the poles are still there. The very ceremonial looking red poles with gold and it's like fifty feet high. And from that they would suspend a swing. And the whole idea was to swing on that and try to I don't know what even the goal was, but it was quite dangerous <laughs> to be swinging so high. Um, I, I it was never told the rules, but I drove by that monument so often, I would think to myself in my child brain, what would it be like to swing from that swing? Yeah. So in, in a sense, those are the contradictions. Mm -hmm. The that that didn't seem to strike Thai people as contradictions, but just yeah. as sort of expressions of of human desires uh, to compete, to 
and there's always this element that when you're competing you are asking the favor of the gods to allow you to win so there's there's a lot of uh, luck involved mm -hmm. they love gambling for same reason because it's a game of luck and they there's so many different amulets and spirits that you can pray to to uh, ask for luck for certain situations hmm. so so in that sense it's it's a, a a culture that is so untouched by western philosophy that it's been allowed to just exist and yet something in it, it allows it to um, be in good relationships with foreign countries. Um, something like you were saying mm -hmm. about that king, something mm -hmm. about him and his politic and probably his whole court and just the attitude of Thai culture was able to extend and invite and allow people to come through, be non-offensive. Um, and yet, and yet to kind of like, like a water off a duck's back, just like, let these other cultures mm -hmm. come through. We're going to swim through your culture, but we are our own. We are ourselves. Yes. Right. And we were a monarchy until the 30s, and then uh, a coup took place, and mm. the parliament was set up, modeling itself after the British. Okay. And in, in this way, we had a semblance of democracy. But we are also a culture that is chronically going through coups you know if you if you have followed thai history at all it is just riddled with coups because democracy was uh they were too impatient you know the side that lost would be too impatient to go through the democratic process so uh, it was a, a very uh, expedient way to kind of step in and and change the order. Yeah, and and it met with various uh, levels of res non-resistance, hmm. mostly non-resistance to out and out marching in the streets to choose sides. I mean, just to understand Thai politics, even Thai people hardly understand Thai politics. <laughs> <laughs> Probably but, best for them. I think America would be better <laughs> off if people just forgot about the politics to a certain extent. Exactly. Because in the end, it's still the same. Yeah, it's still power. the powerful who are in charge. And if <laughs> the peasants on the farm get anything at all it is through the generosity of those in power yeah and after the last political unrest there was a great deal more attention paid to the provinces if you if you've read uh 
what's that children's book series? The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. It, it's all about this central city that has everything. And then the yeah. provinces have almost nothing. And then they're made to compete with each other. Well, the, the Thai population recognize themselves. When I read it, I was like, oh my God, this is just like Bangkok and the provinces. Hmm. So mm-hmm. the last political coup, the side of the farmers ad- adopted the symbology from the Hunger Games and that whistle, the tune. Oh, really? That to use to signal who they were. And this is just what makes Thailand so interesting to watch because they've used Western symbols. They've used Harry Potter as symbols for certain movements, Hmm. student movements, whatever. It's just a way to cast themselves into a Western storyline to fight for freedom. That's a popular one. Freedom. Yeah, it is very popular. (laughs) What about gender roles? Like, is, is, are, are women held back, contained, um, you know, uh, subservient, seen as, seen as lesser, or is there more parody among the sexes? Uh, And has there always been more parody? The women in my family were uh, very powerful and they really, they ran the family. My grandmother was like, what she said was the lay of the land. And she had a job with the government. Uh, She managed, she was basically a cross between the facilities manager of the government house. So she made sure that it was all beautiful and functioning and it had flower arrangements and food was served. And she was also on a committee to welcome foreign dignitaries. So she was, uh, she would research the foreign dignitary, find out what foods they like to eat, what, what the, their preferences were, and then make sure that they had all that and how they were to be greeted and all of the protocol. So she was uh, very powerful in, in that sense especially in my mind, because she met all these very famous people. There's a picture of her shaking hands with Neil Armstrong and another of her in a long lineup receiving Queen Elizabeth. So that certainly made an impression upon me that the women were powerful in my family. And my aunt was uh, managing director of our family business which was in Venetian blinds imported from Australia and hmm. assembled in Thailand during the sixties, you know, everything was Venetian blinds hmm. and we could branch out to, uh, doughboy pools to, so everybody could 
put a swimming pool in the yard for fairly cheaply and yeah. other other ventures like that. So she was also powerful in the sense that she networked with all of the Bangkok business women. And she knew everybody and she was president of the women's business network. So women tended to hmm. control business in Bangkok. Okay. They weren't stay at home moms because we had staff for that. We had nannies and, and staff. My mother, uh, hmm. she got a job with an advertising, an American advertising firm to help uh, national, transnational corporations like Esso and Coca-Cola and uh, Lux Soap, whatever it was that wanted a market wanted to capitalize on the market in Southeast Asia would come through this advertising firm. So she had quite a, a high up job. I call it her Mad Men days hmm. in advertising. And she was handling accounts and so, and doing surveys of the whole city going to every home asking if they had a radio and a TV or whatever. So to me, growing up in this, it was like the, these women are definitely working in high positions. And my father worked for the military. Uh, so it was sort of divided like that. The, the men gravitated towards government being elected and being in government or being in the army and yeah. that's how the power was uh, stratified yeah and women were more entrepreneurial more business oriented oh more, but yes uh, yeah. they ended up owning the hotels and the wow you know franchises all, all sorts of businesses cookie empires <laughs> How does your mom fit into that, moving over there? What does she end up doing with herself while you were a kid? Well, that, that's what I was saying. She she was in advertising. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so she was... Yeah, yeah. she, so she was... Had, had a... My grandmother got her a job teaching because that seemed the obvious thing. She had been a teacher in England, and so... It seemed natural for her to be a teacher in a in and teach English, but she didn't like it at all because the teaching is all memorization and repeating everything you say. So she happened to, through her own relationships, friendships with other expats, find this job in advertising. Okay. Yeah. Which is what got her to the US once we immigrated she got a job in advertising in San Francisco my father also had to get a job in order to uh, rank high in the immigration protocol yeah what did he end up doing when they moved and why did he they came, decide to move why did they move uh, my mother 
she, you know, she's very, she didn't intend to stay in Bangkok forever. My father just says, oh, you know, I have to go home to pay back my school fees because yeah. the, the army Navy paid for it. And we don't really have to stay very long. Okay. <laughs> and very long became seven years. And by that time, my mother was like, I don't really want to raise my child in in this sort of in rote, uh, you know, repeating everything and doing exactly what society had described. Okay. So she was the one who lobbied for us to move to the U.S. And my father, she she persuaded my father to work for an American company, which happened to be based in the Bay Area. It was part of Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a think tank uh, for engineers, mostly working in defense, but also where all the other technology was coming out of. It was Stanford Research Institute at the time. Wow. And is now SRI International. Your and your father, like well, he went to school in England. He went through all the school in England, so his English was not a problem for him moving to. America. It was largely not a problem. He would never really fully grasp English uh, subtleties to discuss. <laughs> yes, and. And my mother, of course, she she was raised on Shakespeare, and she loved the English mm. language, and she passed that on to me. And she and you were always bilingual then. Yes, English was my first language, and then when I got to Thailand, I picked up Thai. But my mother didn't want me to go to Thai schools, so I was educated in the English expat schools. Which, which were very uh, highly academic and, but there I was, I would be learning English money, living in a culture that was using a completely different system. So my childhood, my upbringing was all about subcultures moving between one culture and another culture and trying to figure out how to manage that. So when I look at social issues, I tend to see it from an outsider point of view and ask questions like, is this society want to go in this direction? Is it creating, recreating itself along new paradigms that will require the whole society to operate under these new rules and it also allowed me to see it for what it was if something was coming up that just didn't make sense to me per material reality i would just be like this I, i'm not going with this this is a belief system i'm not going along with this this whole idea that you can have a gender identity, you can have 
whatever you want, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then everybody has to, yeah, reconfigure themselves to you. So just fast forwarding to it uh, through your childhood a bit to being in the Bay Area, uh, realizing in high school that you're most likely going to be a lesbian. Um, and then you, you mentioned something in the very beginning of our conversation about the gay rights movement growing getting steam. So you were there kind of on ground zero, really close to what became the modern gay rights movement, um, which has changed <laughs> over yes. the decades. So could you, so, and, and it's really interesting to, to have you come from a different country and then also you're already bicultural to begin with. You get to America America is America. How did you adapt to the schooling here and the culture here? Was it culture shock for you? or It was a huge culture shock. But because I was already spoke English, um, I had no trouble going to school. The only difference was I didn't know decimal points. So that was just like five minutes of explanation. Oh, interesting. So I... <laughs> I integrated. So you were about 10, 10 or yes. 11? Uh-huh. Okay. Fourth or fifth and grade, I guess. Yes, I came in in fifth grade. And I was often teacher's pet because I was so used to being, you know, we, we revered our teachers in Thailand. Yes, so it, yes. it was a natural fit. And. It was also the beginning of the civil rights era. So I learned all about black culture and black civil rights. And, you know, I thought we had this race problem solved in America. And, and I fit myself into that paradigm, that race, you know, white, non-white paradigm of, of what was going on in the civil rights era. And yeah. then as, as far as culture shock, I just couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't figure out why I was sometimes so angry and so, and felt so, looking back, I would say I was grieving my Thai culture because my Thai family, because only my mother and father came with me, but I was used to living with my entire family. Yeah. And it was five years before I could go back and see him. And a letter. And you went from a really weeks. enmeshed, very complex, uh, just tons of people, tons of relatives all around you to this kind of tiny little unit, just mom, yes. dad, and me. Right. And they, wow. you know, it was like we hardly knew each other. We were so buffered by the rest of the family. So, yeah, I, you know, tried to help. I, I fit in. I did chores. I um, tried to do what my parents said. I wasn't a, a rebel, exactly. So, and also my mother very much carried her British heritage, her British no-nonsense hmm. child-raising methods with her. And she then was going to 
went back to school to get her master's in psychology, her MFCC, marriage, family, child counselor. So I was raised, I then saw, learned alongside her what was child development, what stages and what you could expect from a child. And she did all the tests that you give to children. She practiced on me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. You're your little lab rat. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes I felt like a lab rat. But, yeah, she would give me uh, M&Ms as part of the test. You know, you you got this right, so you get an M&M. It's very behavior modification style Mm, at the mm. time. You're you're frozen there. Uh, It's coming through okay for me. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. So, um... The culture shock, it it took me writing my book, the first book about Thailand, to really understand where, what the difference was in culture that uh, I had had to manage. And, And also, American Buddhism helped a lot. I began to attend a local Buddhist meditation group and listen to the Dharma talks. And I'd hear them and I'd be like, that's just what we learned in Thailand. Only it's now it's translated into English. So now I could understand that there was a difference between the Western Christian paradigm and the... Uh, this Asian culture that I had come from. And that helped mm-hmm. a lot. And how did you, how did you resolve the alienation of being a stranger in a strange land at 10? Did you plug into school? Well, did you make friends? Well, or did you kind of s- tend towards loneliness? Well, I didn't uh, like my original school, my public school at all. Yeah. So I lobbied my parents to send me to a school that I could relate to. And Hmm. I was enrolled in a private school, which had the same academic and classical uh, structure as the schools I had attended in Bangkok. So once I entered the private school, I was fine. There were other immigrants there, too, who had run into the same problem with uh, the public school system not being quite as vigorous as they were used to academically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, going to school in these private schools, I was so grateful to be there. And we wore uniforms just like we wore uniforms in Thailand. So all of that felt much more like home to me. And so I continued, I went to a girl's school for high school. 
and that was vigorously academic. We was we were prep school to Ivy League college system, so there was, and it was at a time when women were beginning to understand that we could have careers. So the school was、uh, helping us to see ourselves that way. Okay. Yeah. It, th- it, that's just an interesting subnote with, because、um, you had already understood that women can have careers, but、um, it's kind of, but it sounds like just to extrapolate what you're talking about with your mom and your grandmother and your aunt, they were all of the aristocratic class, so they they could afford to、um, hire women to do the. You know the the house stuff,、uh, the domestic、yeah. stuff. They could hire servant stuff, and then they could focus on careers. In America, we didn't have we don't have that really stable class system. So the broadening of women having careers to the middle class was kind of a novel. It was a, it was a culture shift for us. You know, whereas the aristocracy could always always be a little bit more involved in. Entrepreneurship or、uh, whatnot, but that、mm-hmm. that broadening of who could have a career, the broadening of、uh, you know the, the cl- less class oriented Americana、um, cha- change in the gender is a little bit different mix than what you were describing in Thailand. Yes,、uh, in fact, it became much more apparent to me in. The states that women were getting half the opportunities. It seemed like、hmm. I couldn't get a paper route. Oh, okay. I, I had that was such a classic、uh, job, and for some reason I really wanted one. I wanted、hmm. to ride my bike through the streets, flinging things into people's yards. Right, but it wasn't available to me. Huh. And th- there were so many other barriers that I recognized as a child. The Girl Scouts they went camping, and the pa- the fathers came to put up the tents. And this was so not what my mother's girl guides had been like. That I was just like just pulled towards my tomboy side and. By eighth grade, I was saying, "I wish I were a boy." Oh, okay. You know, clearly, this. So the American rigidity around gender roles that you met caused you some form of social dysphoria. To just、yes. kind of to play with that word a little bit, yeah.、Mm-hmm. Right. So, but because the. I came of age in in the feminist、uh, time. I I was being told that I could do things that were not usually a, a woman's career if I wanted to. So that kind of compensated for、hmm. the whole dysphoria around being in this gender, this sex that was so limited. It was compensation, and there was still the issue of be of being same sex attracted and be becoming involved in the 
lesbian and gay community that was also an adjustment. When did you discover this lesbian gay community? Um, my first summer out of uh, college, I started to explore San Francisco and find the, the gay community. I went to the first, well, for me, my first uh, gay freedom march was in 1979. Okay. Which was just about the beginning of gay liberation coming onto the scene on the heels of civil rights and the women's movement. So there was a, a, a momentum already for this kind of civil rights uh, struggle and coming to be accepted in society. Hmm. And because I, I had, I was already out to myself much earlier than my peers at the time. Women were not recognizing their homosexuality until at least in college. So that I should see it in high school was, I would say, because of my Thai heritage had already informed me that this was very likely uh, okay. a path. So I was already ahead of the game. I didn't carry the internalized homophobia that my peers did. So I was able to be more open and more uh, visible. So my task, once I became involved in the gay community, was to persuade people around me, people at work, that I, I would come out and that I was not scary, I was unexpected because I didn't look like what they imagined a lesbian would look like. I, I kept my hair long uh, because I wanted to hang on to my Asian mm. culture, my, my Asian looks, and it was easier to have present as long hair and look like an Asian woman. Had I cut it short, I would have looked like a boy, a, a man, and that would have kind of defeated the purpose of, of my hmm. uh, gender goals, I, I suppose. Yeah. So, okay, you, you brought up something that, that's just interesting. So, what you were just describing now, at the, the dawn of the gay rights movement, women weren't, rec you just said women weren't recognizing their homosexuality until college. And you were ahead of the game, so you had a little bit more time to, I guess, adjust to yourself, um, to... to be comfortable with yourself. What's happening now is that kids are being foisted at nine 
seven, eight, nine into this, into, into choosing a sexuality before any, anywhere before sexuality is anywhere naturally developing and stuff. So there's gotta be a way that we can look maybe at the way that Thailand provided you self-awareness in a proper way, maybe just in a cultural way without like becoming indoctrination like we do now celebration and, you know, Mm -hmm. like making it like this whole rite of passage that is just foisted on children way before they're ready. Right. Yes. Um, And I wonder if hopefully, well, hopefully the whole pride thing that's gone so far now Mm-hmm. is uh, without hopefully without like terrible backlashes just kind of stops becoming such a central feature of our entire culture and just becomes something that is just kind of in the background this is just a part of the human experience we don't need to celebrate it we don't need to shove it down each other's throats all the time so i'm just I, i'm throwing those things out it seems like you were a little bit more well adjusted or you're giving me a glimmer that maybe thailand is better adjusted to variations and and human sexuality and preparing individuals to go down different paths um, that America is kind of bungling in our, like, we just have to America, we have to corporatize it. We have to brand it. We have to make it a big statement. Um, just wonder what you think about those thoughts. Yes. I, I certainly feel that way. Um, the whole gender non-conforming equating to being the opposite sex or neither is a truly a bungling of of in 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 my uh cultural knowledge it is just rewriting what to me was a natural expression into a whole different paradigm that assumes that human beings are born wrong and and how can that be (laughs) and also if born wrong and we want to fix it how can you fix it with just these plastic surgeries and crude workarounds using drugs to uh, bring out secondary sex characteristics, using drugs to stop puberty and thus stop the development of the human body. This is just uh, so outrageous to me. It, it is really what motivates me to speak out about it. Mm-hmm. Because basically it's, it's lost touch with reality it it's completely made up and it's made up from so many different uh sides like on the academic level there's this whole deconstruction again mind separated from body you could do anything with your mind so you could create any stories you want to say well gender is to be subverted and we must break down and go as far as to manipulate our bodies to fit whatever we want there's just that there seems to be no 
foundation, no firm structure under which to raise this belief system. And, and I think it is wrong to try to force children to state what their gender identity is, rather than just let them explore and be neither one thing or the other until they're ready. And, hmm. and it's all because of the gender non-conforming piece of it. We've always had gender non-conforming children, people. It just depends on what story you're going to hang on it. Yes. Now, yes. The, the story of reincarnation is a belief system, and it served me well to embrace it. I still believe in reincarnation, and but I acknowledge that this is a belief that cannot be proven and shouldn't be made into a state religion, hmm. which is what we're, we're seeing now with yeah. going on now. Yeah. The um, what I, I I gave some we met a few weeks ago at an event that I spoke at, and you made me think mm. about um, how your culture deals with you know the variation in gender expression let's say or the outliers the margins and with the story i, I said this in, in my talk that the story of reincarnation gives you this ability to say okay i might have a male spirit or maybe my spirit or my soul has been imprinted by my male experience and my past life and that's carrying over here and now i'm kind of male in a female body and it, it allows you it allows two things which the gender ideology is not serving it's bringing up these questions it's not solving these it's not answering these questions um in an efficient way i think and then it, it allows for some pretty negative outcomes but in in the reincarnation story it gives you a personal it, it gives you a framework to say I am as I am and there's a meaning to me being this way and it's just how I am and so I have to and, and then it gives you a sense of purpose like I have to figure out the lessons and you know I have to go through this and I have to learn how to accept myself because the lessons are always about becoming more real becoming more me you know it, it gives you like this transcendental path towards individuation or self-ownership without denying yourself so like I'm different than everybody else and then something else that you said when we met the other week was that everybody around you also recognizes you and they have a way of relating to you say okay you are a female we're not going to deny you that but there's something male about you and so we're going to allow you wiggle room to express that and learn that but we still have expectations of you um staying in in certain you know there, there's certain safeguards and then certain without without demeaning the person or putting them down necessarily the person's respected for their individuality. And then the, the person is also expected to respect society and the structures of society without destabilizing everything. And what we have here is in certain respects, there's a lot of different things that are, there's a lot of different um, irons in the fire, different um, motivations that are pushing the gender ideology movement from, you know, vested interests to academic theories stuff. But one of the more um, kind hearted reasons why it's being pushed in schools is that we want to save kids from being bullied, 
right? We want to, we want to protect kids from being bullied. We, we don't want the marginalized to be oppressed, right? And that's a noble thought, but by for, but but in our typical fashion western american fashion we go overboard and we're going to we're going to start to bully people in order for people not to be bullied we're going to start to force everybody yes. to accept the most marginalized in order so that nobody's going to be marginalized and so we're going to marginalize the normal person we're going to put the per, mm-hmm. the normal person down we're going to say the normal person's the oppressor the normal person's the weird one and they're responsible for all the pain so we we totally overshot the mark in 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 so far as we were trying to to make society more accepting of the marginal or the gender non-conforming we've overstepped the mark and kind of broken the wheels on the bus in in our pursuit of of that Mm. so it's just Mm -hmm. it it seems like there's something about the way that you were expressing and the way that you're talking now that has a more balanced frame of reference that i think would be much more um, healthy, especially for the non, the gender non-conforming, like these, these detransitioners who get it in their head that they need to escape their body and do incredible damage to themselves. Mm-hmm. And then have to live with that. They wake up, they're 20, they're 25 and their body's been ir- irreparably harmed by the pursuit mm-hmm. of this thing that they just, all they needed to do was to learn to accept themselves rather than to deny themselves in the pursuit of self-acceptance, ironically. Yes. And it is a combination of having to negotiate being a woman, Hmm. coming of age as a woman, and all of that that entails, especially in today's social media, uh, body, everything's about how you look on the the tiny screen. Hmm. And having to negotiate the sexualization of being a woman and um, then there's a the homosexuality part of it would we're failing to acknowledge homosexuality in our haste to validate this gender non-conforming presentation that is being scripted to be that there's a gender identity, a gendered soul, as it were, and then to imply that this should be fixed with medical means. I mean, this is just... Hmm. uh, uh, who, Who is it serving? I mean, you just have to ask the question, well, if there's always been gender non-conforming kids and people, how did they survive before? You know, weren't they just accepted for who they were trying to be? But no, now we, we have to be so focused on how we make our body look. This is seems to be hmm. just so wrong on so many levels from from your buddhist perspective how is that wrong or what is the how is that violating the order of things hmm well buddhism acknowledges that the body ages suffers and dies so we have to 
learn to handle that. We have to accept these premises, accept that we're in the body that we're in, that it's going to suffer because of physical harms and illness. That, that is a premise of Buddhism, is that because the, uh, the body is, is so susceptible to physical harms, we can't really control it. So we have to control our minds and our anxiety about it. And hmm. just sit, you know, uh, the whole meditation process is all about breathing in and focusing on the breath. And what could be more embodied than focusing on the breath? Buddhism was never really presented with this idea that you could change sex by uh, operating on the body. So I wouldn't be able to say that there were uh, answers to this question of how does Buddhism handle this. I can only really say that Buddhism's focus is on not being so self-focused, not being so concerned uh, of uh, yourself. I mean, one of the goals is to reach no self. And I can't begin to explain what exactly that means because that wasn't really a, a goal of my childhood Buddhism. Yes. My, my childhood Buddhism was mostly about accepting the way things are. It's just like the, uh, the serenity prayer. You know, God help me to accept the things as they are and to change the things that I can. I, I'm mangling the, the whole uh, mm. prayer. But that, when I saw that as a, a child, I was just, as a teenager, I was just like, now that describes exactly what I see East meeting West. The East is all about accepting and fatalism and going along with whatever. And the West is about doing what you can to relieve the suffering of the things that you cannot change. Hmm. So I, I actually get along very well with people who have been through AA and, you know, that, that has never brought up in terms of gender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we have too much of a, the whole narration of suicide, whatever. Yes. God grant me the strength to uh, accept the sex that I cannot change. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And the, and, exactly. and, and the, the willingness to, to, um, yes. to change the things about myself that relieve my stress. We, we need a gender AA. <laughs> yes, yes. Gender, gender anonymous. anonymous. Oh, geez, yeah. If only gender was more anonymous, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am he, him. Hi, he, him. And I, here's my story. 
Right. So, so you have a book, uh, The Unexpected Penis, salacious title, yes, Conversations yes. on the uh-huh. Gender Trail. And you also have uh, other books about your childhood growing up and stuff. Um, the Unexpected Penis, which is a great title. Um, you, you have a, uh, you gave me an advanced copy. Is this, is this published? Yes, now it's now available. Can... Okay. Uh, I published it with the Amazon platform. Mm-hmm. So that's where it can be found. And in this book, what do you cover? It's a lot of what we've already covered, but your conversations on the gender trail. What do you speak about in this book for those who are interested? I talk about third gender culture as as a way of seeing gender. Mm. I talk about... And third gender culture isn't some sort of fetishized Western point of view. You're talking about what we talked about here, about different... Indigenous societies, other non-Western societies, relationship to the gender non-conforming male and the gender non-conforming female, and how those cultures dealt with that and and allowed those people a landing place and a place in society, rather than upending society like we're Mm -hmm. some people are trying to do right now. Yeah. Yeah, and we never denied biological sex, which is really annoying when the the Western version is, oh, well, there's always been a third sex or multiple sexes, but it, it isn't true. It, it was a construct that we could inhabit, but we never denied that biology was uh, more than two sexes. Yeah. So, yes, that, that's... The, the book is a memoir of uh, my journey to understanding what Western society, American society, was trying t- to develop in changing the language and in introducing pronoun preferences and all of these things and in, and in trying to introduce new interpretations of biology to try to persuade people that there was that sex was on a spectrum or that there was more than two sexes because there's intersex so i have a whole chapter describing why this intersex piece of it is is just not what we're, we're given to believe by this narrative. Yeah. And then and what particularly in looking at all of this and studying all this and then, and then putting yourself uh, through a first person perspective, what kind of solutions or paths forward do you recommend and that you, you feel the need to share? Oh, huh. The, the solutions, you know, we're, we're in the middle of it. So, mm. I mean, my, my solution would be to keep the binary, keep the, the material reality in, in our definitions of what the sexes are. Because otherwise, it becomes completely chaotic and you, you can't defend sex-based rights, you can't defend 
medical knowledge because female bodies are different from male bodies. Uh, you can't defend crime statistics. So my attempt to explain how we got here is to show that this wasn't a new discovery. This isn't a coming out of people who would have suppressed their gender identity before. This is a created narrative that has come to us through all the channels we trusted before. And they, there was only a few people in charge at the time and no one thought they needed to police this. So once I understood all of the, those components, then I was able to see that this is just a construction. And the people who are used to following the, the chains of trust in their organizations and their careers, their, their disciplines, need to stop and come out and say something. Hmm. But of course, at this point, it is so difficult to step out and because you get so much trouble. I mean, I didn't want to write this book in the beginning. I was like, over my dead body, why, why would I bring <laughs> such trouble upon myself? And that was in 2019 when I first heard that young girls were thinking that they were boys now. Hmm. So, and, and were, were trying to make themselves into boys. And, but the cultural information was coming so hard to support this whole new narrative that I was overwhelmed by it. But, and I was also in the middle of writing my own memoir of my own uh, non-conforming childhood. And I just wanted to make space for that, for, for telling the whole story that I've told to you a lot of. And so once I got finished with that book and I, I didn't say anything about trans ideology in that book at all, I just wanted to keep it to be my own story of my own time. Mm -hmm. So all, but I had to understand the information in order to make that space for myself. I didn't want people to immediately think, oh, she was a gender non-conforming child. She would have been trans today, or she really is trans. And then I realized that's what children think now, that they, they must be trans. So... In, in reviewing my own gender nonconformity and seeing what was happening to children today, I, I realized that this was just a topic that I had to get my mind around. Hmm. And I spent so much time doing it that, and also talking to people, that's why it's called Conversations on the Gender Trail, uh, the subtitle, so that I could understand what people were trying to adopt as their reason for going along with this. And uh, we now have so many more people who want to show 
how how thin these reasons are from the biology to the the theology of it and mm-hmm. and then of course the the hazards uh the harm that these sex changes are actually doing to the body and and it's one thing to do as an adult you know that's just more of a plastic surgery but for a child to to have these treatments mangle their development to full human beings to 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 a fully functional human being that to me is is just wrong wrong headed hmm. wrong way uh thailand has a law i mean we're the sex change capital of the world right and yeah. our lgbt communities persuaded the government to pass this law n- not to give this sex change treatment to minors because they changed their minds <laughs> isn't it do you know obvious? when that, that law was passed i think it was uh maybe 2014 really Th- there oh were, wow uh, Huh. There was no need before because nobody would be so daft as to <laughs> allow children to be treated this way. But then people from overseas were coming and and I think the last uh person who got in there was the woman who started mermaids in Susie in, Green uh, is that? Yes, yes, I think it was her child Jackie who uh went to Thailand and and had this sex change done and the Thai people were kind of horrified it must have made the news hmm. because i mean that's what i hear through through the grapevine was that yeah Thai people couldn't understand why a mother would do this to a child i mean mothers in in Thailand of of the the third gender men mostly who who go through the sex change it wouldn't have been their idea you know they came to, to accept boy. yes yes i mean the job of a mother is is to protect the child and and make sure he or she develops into a whole human being and and because thailand is so used to the, this cross dressing we understood that as long as society accepts that they are the way they are there is no suicide factor mm-hmm. the and that the actual sex change operations themselves are just enhancements performance enhances of of this presentation so hmm. right that that's wow. that that is because i was so strong in the way that i could see this as an outsider and as someone yes. informed by such a culture i could gear myself up to uh present this information in 
an accessible way. I mean, this is a small book, so it's not it's intimidating. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's it's easy to get very into. Well yes. People don't have to agree with me. You, you read a memoir to see what a person thinks, and you're allowed to make your own judgment about whether this person has a viable uh, narrative, whether they can be trusted as a narrative, whether they have information you might not have. And so the book allows you to peruse the territory without committing to actually saying, well, I need to look into this and I need to research further. It's more like, well, let's let's just see what an uh, LGBT native actually has to say about this movement, who who's a lesbian and a gender non-conforming lesbian at that. Uh, what what is that perspective, and might she have some good points, or or is she stepping over the line? So by by that medium. Uh, by this memoir medium, I am hoping that people will uh, entertain what I have to say uh, and be entertained hmm. because I wish to be a good storyteller. <laughs> you are, and that's why I wanted you to have wanted to have you on. So I, I really appreciate well, you. you giving me your time and, and it was great to meet you in California and then to have you back on. Um, because I do think that conversation is one of the ways that this is going to unravel or give people more space to, um, think things through, um, outside of the political cockfight, taking bets, um, you know, it, putting uh, betting your portfolio and your retirement savings on if gender affirming uh, care is just going to pay pay your way to the Bahamas and back. Um, so <laughs> it's it's wonderful to have you on, and and uh, I'll definitely link your book. And how can people connect with you uh, otherwise? Are do you have much of a presence on social media? Is there anything else that um, people through ways that people can connect with you? I I. I kept my writing on this mostly to my book. I did have a blog for a while that's still up, amandacovatana.blogspot.com, mm -hmm. that follows my journey mostly as an environmental activist. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of, of starting a, a substack just to share the ongoing conversations. So at the moment, I... I'm mostly found in my books mm -hmm. and social media and a uh, little bit of a Twitter. I am on my under my own name, Amanda Covatana. So it, it's easy to find me. That that's the luck of being having a Thai name is it's mm -hmm. it's unique. Mm -hmm. Do you know so Covatana? What what that uh, signifies? Well, to a Thai, it signifies that I was originally a Chinese family immigrant who is trying to be Thai. Ga hmm. is Chinese. Watana is a Thai name. 
So, okay. yeah. So the, the Chinese who came, came to Thailand married in, they married Thai wives. So they married into the society and, hmm. and they took over Bangkok because they were shopkeepers. They weren't allowed to own land. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the merchantile class. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And also thank you very much for bringing uh, more, I, I just like hearing history and stuff. So thanks for, for bringing up that rich history of your country and stuff. We truly live in a, you know, varied world. And if people right. like open their minds and to other experiences, other ways of, of looking at things, I think mm. it's really healthy for, you know, especially in, in politically motivated discourse or when we're trying to like come to an opinion or really think about, you know, what is a human being? What is a man? What is a woman? You know, to really look at the history of men and women and, and culture is really important. And we overlook, we are too impatient often to, to really take in a wide variety of points of view and, and historical realities. So it's always very enriching to have that in the conversation. Thank you. It was an, an unexpected journey. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect to quite go in, into this depth uh, about Thailand and the history and all of that. But I, I hope that it is uh, a way in uh, for people to be interested in, in other cultures, mm -hmm. especially here in the States, which is such an insular culture. Yeah, America. <laughs> well, Amanda, I'm going to end the interview now. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. There we go. And there we go.